0: Getting split Getting ready. Split
1: Getting ready. split
0: ready. For my wife, God rest her soul. Oh God, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. She's dead. We're just divorced. Unscripted and honest discussions on divorce
2: and separation.
1: Getting split ready. What was I supposed to tell him? I divorced you from the show?
2: Here's your hosts, Doug Katz and Mariah Pleasant.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Getting Split Ready. Great show tonight. Four fantastic guests, we've got Teresa Kulot, who is with Trinity, Finan- or Tr- Trinity Family Services, uh, and she's going to talk a little bit about the metaphysical aspects of divorce. Really excited about that. Steve Coe from Lennox Advisors talking a little bit about insurance and considerations during divorce. Karen Khalil, uh, a therapist, talking a little bit about de- uh, depression and how that ties into divorce. And finally, Jill Daniels from Jill Daniels Law talking a little bit about legal considerations in financial aspects, or real estate aspects of divorce. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, the first subject matter expert, Teresa Coulott, uh, works as a mediator, a collaborative lawyer, a neutral case facilitator. She's really passionate about helping families, currently serves on the Illinois State Bar Association Family Law Section Council. She's a fellow at the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois, one of my favorite organizations. and has held many leadership positions including President from 2016 to 2017. Her writing credits include Holistic Divorce, An Opportunity for Transformation published in Stress-Free Divorce and the Collaborative Process Act chapter in Gitlin on Divorce. She provides training and public speaking through her company Trinity Collaboration Incorporated. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks, Doug. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Awesome. Well, I got to jump in and ask the first question because I've been dying to know more. Divorce is really concrete, right? It's it, it's sort of about numbers. It's all about a lot of stuff. Talk a little bit about the metaphysical aspect. It's abstract. So, so again, I was blown away when you came up with the subject. So, tell me about it.
2: Well, you know, you and I have known each other for a while, yes. and I've been in this space a long time. Trained in 2002, so as a family lawyer. I represent as a lawyer, so I really do legal work. (laughs) 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 I do. I work with with same-sex couples, couples with children, couples who have businesses. I have big cases. I have little cases, high conflict, low conflict. And I've got training in various spiritual traditions and healing modalities, so that's how the topic came up. Okay. Um, basically, you and I were chatting about well, what does does your listener need to hear about? And they've got great resources in terms of right. mediation. You know, you've got litigation experts for them and collaborative law, which I'm grateful that you guys are sharing about that. Um, and from my perspective, I know all those things. I know that on the ground in the trenches what it takes to get divorced from a legal perspective, um, but truly it's my spiritual training and my metaphysical perspective, I think, that sets me apart and helps my clients get results. So to answer your question, um, in from my perspective, I can see divorces fit into three kind of categories, okay, and I put them in the spiritual category of, hey, this couple came together, they did what they needed to do, but now they're... Their journey together is complete and they both accept that. Okay. Then you have the couple in the middle where they've been together. One person feels complete, I'll say spiritually from a, you know, a social emotional standpoint, but the other one is still hanging on, is not complete, is, is frustrated, doesn't understand. And then the third category is couples who they're still duking it out. You know, they're, they've still got patterns that they're working through. And they're just going to play those same patterns out in the divorce that they played out in their marriage. So from my perspective, I kind of actually Trinity stands for, believe it or not, all three levels. So the, le- the lowest level is the on the ground. This is practical. We have to know what's in your marital estate. You know, how are you going to divide your stuff? Who's going to pick up the kids on Tuesday? You know, that's your deepest, you know, your on the ground's earthly level. Your high level is another level, like spiritually, like why did you come together? What is your purpose? Um, how? What are the values that you stand for? So when you parent, you are making decisions based on these higher goals. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the Trinity part, the third is when they come together. I say in the heart where those things kind of mesh, and you have to go back and forth between the two. Right. So I think all three levels need to be addressed in your divorce.
3: Oh, absolutely. So how would you introduce this concept to clients that are in your office? It's not necessarily something they're probably expecting to go over when they're going over their divorce business stuff.
2: Right, okay, well, so the answer to the question is depending on where they're at, right? So if I get a couple and and recognizing I'm a mediator, so in some situations I'm representing both people, and I also work as a lawyer, so in some cases I'm working with one individual. So I typically don't tell people where they are. I okay. simply use that information to help me serve them better and give them what they need. Now, I will say, um, there are clients who we will end up talking and sharing our spirituality or our practices. And I often, I will say more than 50% of the time, encourage my clients to do deep breathing, to, to meditate. Um, I help them journal and kind of forward-focus, create visions of what they want to create, which is sort of a spiritual activity in terms of creative visualization or an affirmation, such that they're not looking at the past and looking more future-focused. So it kind of depends on the person. And, and I will say, you know, sometimes I have the person who's who's the behind person, who the spouse wants the divorce, and they aren't in the place of—so so the divorce process also follows the grief process, mm-hmm. right? the stages of death and dying, so depending on where my client is, I'm going to help that person deal with whatever they're dealing with, and in light of the fact that their spouse may be ahead of them or behind them, that, that's going to de- decide on what tools I use to help them.
3: I would imagine that when you've got two people that have kind of run their course and gotten to the end together and completed their journey together, that's probably the easiest couple? What's harder? The ones where they're both still duking it out? Or where one person is complete and
2: one isn't? That's a great, great question. So yes, when both parties have reached the end of their journey and they see that it's over, then those couples and I'll kind of tie it into your material, they're I really see as they're mediation friendly kind of people. They can do an uncontested. I really don't recommend do-it-yourself divorces, even in those situations, just because of the paperwork. They should have someone helping them. Um, on the other extreme, like the families where both people are still in their patterns, and, mm-hmm. and the typical pattern is your dominator. They've been dominating the whole marriage. They want to dominate the divorce. And then you have your victims that go along with that. So the victim has been victimized the whole divorce, and pro- or the whole marriage. They're probably going to continue to be victimized during the divorce. In those situations, I really, if I can't help one or the other, these are the couples who actually do belong in litigation sometimes, where they actually need professionals to help them manage this dynamic. For me, the most exciting couple is when you have one who's a little further along than -hmm. the other. So it's difficult, right? Because one person generally can stay calm but the other person is acting out the old patterns, right? And so the person who is trying to kind of move on is getting triggered, right? They're getting pulled back in and yet they're trying to hang on to their new identity. And so for those people, I really like the collaborative process, frankly. Um, In that situation, each person has an attorney And those attorneys are trained in mediation, so they're going to help the slower moving person get speed up. They're going to help the faster moving slow down. And also, in an interdisciplinary collaborative process, we have mental health professionals who, again, hold space for people to be who they are and yet to grow. So that's where I, again, those are, the tif- those are difficult, frankly. Absolutely. When you have them, uh, they're not on the same page. The people who fight, they're going to keep fighting. They're the, the, the two fighters, they're in post-decree litigation. They're divorced 10 years, they're still fighting with each yeah, other. Yeah, whether
3: they're divorced or not doesn't change right. the patterns. it doesn't change yeah. the hey,
2: patterns.
1: You, when, before we, you know, when we were out hanging out in the green room area, you were talking a little bit about spirituality and how that roots your engagement with your clients. Talk a little bit about that. And, and how you introduce that and bring that into your process and your connection with the clients.
2: Okay. Well, as I said to Mariah, some are informed of it particularly. Some actually come to me because they have heard that I have a spiritual perspective.
3: Do you put that on your website? Do you put that out there in your marketing materials?
2: Um, I would say not per se. Okay. You know the the what it's I out just co- yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's out, out there now. that's why and word of mouth. Well, you know, okay. So, um, but again, I'm going to meet people where they are, and that's you know, I, in one case, I had a woman where we were. Where, I, I my office is in Downers Grove, and uh, the other attorney was in the city, and we drove to a meeting together, and we basically did hail marys down the Eisenhower. <laughs> okay, so if you know the Eisenhower It no, was a calming no, the football, thing the Not, the, not no, the those that we, okay. we said the prayer Going down the Eisenhower So I'll just i I'll share that with okay. you and, um, and I do do, again, breathing exercises And I meet people where they are You know, if people don't have a spiritual tradition That's fine too, you know I do pray for my clients Before I begin meetings
1: No, I think it's really grounded I think that, you know, that, yeah. that really helps out a lot
2: Okay, well, I, I'll say this too Because this is the truth <laughs> these complex cases, some of them are are unbelievably complex between the financial, you know, people who have their own businesses, they have they're working with siblings. I have many cases where two people are working in and owning the same business. They have children together. They have houses together. So much is intertwined, and it's like a Rubik's Cube. If you turn one thing, it impacts another. And my point is sometimes these are so complex, it needs an intelligence that's bigger than me, that's bigger than the two attorneys, that's bigger than the five professionals. So I surrender. That's that's my definition of spirituality, a recognition that there is an intelligence that's greater than me and the you know five, six people in the room. And if you kind of relax into that, you'll get a better result. Stress is the worst killer. It will kill all creativity. It puts people in boxes. Whereas if you can keep people calm and kind of trusting that okay this may be uncomfortable it may be difficult now but we will get to the end.
1: What do you do when it gets overly tense when when you've hit that point? What are some techniques that you use to bring them back to a grounding type situation?
2: Okay, so I will acknowledge that I have been trained in several healing modalities. Um, I train my clients. Uh, prior to walking into, uh, if I have a client with whom I know there's going to be difficult energetic dynamics, okay, um, there's a particular meditation that I do that I teach, it's on my website, where we ground and then we connect to the higher energies and then essentially you put yourself in a bubble, like you're strengthening your auric field. So it's like you're in a an egg, the shell is around you. And... The idea here is that it's like a golden mesh egg. So the love can come through, but if it's not loving, it bounces off. And likewise, if you're gonna send, speak words of love, they'll make it through. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's one of the techniques that I teach people. And so if, I'm in, if I am in a very difficult meeting, um, that's my first thing. I ground myself, I take a breath, I put up my own Oric Field, and then I see each person surrounded in love, and so that is the particular thing I do in cases of. And
1: that's just you, or do you do you help them understand that? I mean, again, we were talking before we came in how it's an existential crisis, right? Divorce, people question everything at that point, yes. right? They question everything in their lives. Is it you, and you bring it in how you engage them, or do you try and bring them into the process and bring them into that 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 Good place, I guess. I don't even know how to describe it. Well,
2: right. Because, well, and the part, the difficulty here is you're framing a question, and there are literally thousands of types of cases in couples, right? Right. So um, the easy answer is hey, if people are open to it ahead of time, I've trained them ahead of time so that they're not learning it in the meeting, first of all. And then the second part is like, if I do have a case that's difficult, you can't teach it in the moment. You know, it's, it's really, you know, I'm going to rely on my fellow professionals. I mean, I will say too, another one of the ways that I am a very good professional is I have good people I work with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have a, we're
1: working on some together. I can, I can definitely attest to that.
2: Yeah. So I have a golden Rolodex, right? right? Like I, I have people who I know are going to be aligned philosophically with me. The coaches Mm -hmm. that I use, I know, Uh, here's a great example I had a family come in for a collaborative case and they had teenage children and mom was with these kids all the time and dad's relationship with the kids was non-existent. Literally non-existent. And there were money problems, etc. So at the first meeting in a collaborative case you set goals. And one of the goals was for the father to rebuild his relationship with these children. Okay. Now I know as the lawyer that's not my role. But we got them hooked up with a mental health professional who was a child specialist, who's a coach, who was able to facilitate and then create a platform for these children who were teenagers. They had wills of their own. And by the end of the case, dad had, you know, regular time with these kids. And there was such healing that came from the fact that we used a team. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a fighting. It wasn't who's right, who's wrong. It's like, how can we help this family get to where what they want to be?
1: I think I want to wrap up this thing with a question on outcomes. Um, you know, it none of it matters if the outcomes aren't good. What? Tell me a little bit about the difference you see in when people are grounded and using these techniques and when they're not. Like, how does it turn out?
2: So, my favorite phrase, and someday I'll market it out there. To <laughs> call this my, you know, my trademark. Is I get results beyond the balance sheet. Okay. So when people do a holistic approach, they're going to get a marital settlement. They're going to get enough assets to take care of themselves. The, the, the support scenario is going to be sufficient for everybody to make their needs met. And they're going to get a relationship with their former spouse. They're going to get a connection. They're going to get the houses they want. They're going to get children who don't have to go to therapy and don't try to commit suicide. So those results, it's hard to put a dollar figure on those. I will say too, my other thing I brag about is I've had um, several cases where the couples start collaborative and midway through, having learned new communication skills, they actually stayed together. Wow. Yeah. So I call that a nice result. And, it and, is. And and yet, a lot of people still get divorced. And I say, I stand for healthy families the way dentist stands for healthy teeth. Yep. Like, I don't care if they're in your mouth or like you've got fillings. But when you're done, you're going to have a healthier relationship, a healthier family. And sometimes
3: you can save a tooth, and sometimes you can't. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Nice. Well, I think we're going to move on to the next segment. Sounds good.
1: The next segment we're going to have is with Steve Coe. This segment is brought to you by Divorce Credit Pro. A divorce can take an enormous strain on your credit. bad credit score can translate into thousands of dollars, an extra cost <laughs> for mortgages, car loans, and credit cards. In some cases a very low credit score will prevent you from obtaining financing at all. Generally a person's credit score is directly related to where they are in life. Significant milestones in life like purchasing the first home, starting family and even divorced tend to stress finances and impact your score. If you're struggling with poor damaged credit, let Divorce Credit Pro help you repair your credit and be ready to take the next step. So I want to talk a little bit about insurance and introduce our next subject matter expert and to the panel if you got a question throwing. We want this to be interactive, so don't be shy. Pardon me, so Steve Coe is from Lennox Advisors. He joined Lennox Advisors in 2015 as a Vice President. He's been in the financial industry for 10 years, uh, most recently with Guggenheim Partners before he was with Lenox Advisors. He's a graduate of the United States Military Academy, fellow 93 grad, and a friend of the show too, Uh, as well as a Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management graduate and holds uh, Series 7 and Series 63 licenses. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Doug. All right, so do you want to jump in? Or I'll jump in for the first question. And uh, how should I change my insurance if I'm preparing
4: for a divorce? Well, it, it really depends. Some states, and especially, um, although not in Illinois, but some states will automatically freeze assets subject to the same rules for moving brokerage and checking accounts they won't allow any changes to a policy while you're as soon as you file but to prepare prepare folks and this continues both before during and after the owner of the policy however it was initially set up can make changes uh, pretty much whenever they want and so if you're the, if you're, uh, if you stand to lose or you want to make sure that your kids are, you're not the obligor in this situation, you kind of have to keep an eye out on that relationship. And the, and the insurance carriers are not beholden to anyone except for the owner of the policy. So that, that, um, that relationship is, is one that needs to be monitored. So- Going in well balanced helps being balanced coming out of the divorce. Right, but I mean, you, you as a if you're planning on having this for dependents, and you stand to lose if if the primary breadwinner were to become deceased, at any point in time, if the primary breadwinner is the owner, they can make a change, and it's very tough to fight. So, you know, regular supervision and as part of the court order or or settlement agreement should be maintained.
3: So an example um, that I know currently is in a case where a woman is divorced from her husband, husband has a life insurance policy, he owns the policy, the wife and the kids are the beneficiaries. When he owns that policy, the divorce is over. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he can make almost any change to that policy that he wants, correct? And
4: legally no notification will go to the former beneficiaries, he could change it to a future wife or, or his mother or whoever he wants.
3: And even if there's a court order that he has to keep his wife as a beneficiary, the way to enforce that is to...
4: Is to regularly to, yeah. check as part of that court order. Is to, there a better way for that. her
3: to protect herself?
4: Yeah, so one of the better ways to protect herself if, if there's not a lot of trust in the divorce is to change the ownership. And that can be done, so she could be the owner. So she could be the owner.
1: I got a real question. I want to ask the attorneys here because we got we've got three who handled or three, two attorneys and a mediator. Um, is that a consideration when you're looking at when you're the, the the maintenance and the child support and all of that? If somebody's undercovered, um, you know, just because the marriage settlement agreement says they're going to pay so much if they get disabled or obviously if they die, they can't pay. So how does that work into what you do with MSAs?
5: Are you talking disability or are you talking life insurance? Or the I guess either, of either
1: one because I think they're, they're both important.
5: Well, you look at like life insurance so that you wouldn't have enough to cover the, um, you know, like the support going on for the spouse and the children through, you know, until they were 18 or through college. So that you would have enough for that, and you also then would look at disability to make sure that you would have coverage for that. At least, I mean, would you second that, Teresa?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've done it even um, more specifically in the marital settlement agreement, whereby <clears throat> a portion of the insurance is designated as securing maintenance, for example, because we look at the future maintenance obligation and say she's going to need, or if if he lived. He would pay her, let's say, 10 years, 50 grand a year. He's going to need to pay her 500000 being very simplistic. So we want at least a $500,000 policy if he died, right? And then the child support is another. I've done it where then there's a different policy or another portion of the policy to secure the child
5: support.
1: And can that be court order? Can, they say, can the court say you need to have that policy in place
5: to ensure that? Going well, it would be in the MSA, so that is a court order when it's entered in. And the the
2: new statute actually in Illinois, I, I think that the ability of a judge to require it is different than the wisdom of having a couple agree to that in advance. Okay, so the statute was recently in Illinois changed to give the judge authority to order life insurance. So that's a possibility, yes.
3: Do you have any experience, Steve? I know that we talk about life insurance and disability for maintenance and child support, but it also comes into play a lot in cases where there's special needs kids? Um, is that something that...
4: Yeah, so that that's uh, that adds another level of intricacy. Um, you know, you might wanna have set up a testamentary trust that could pop open in case maybe the primary caregiver uh, was unable to perform or if, you know, it got to the point where other siblings had to be on a board to make decisions for that special needs, but having a special needs trust uh listed as a potential um, possibility for that for that instance is i think uh extremely wise planning to do if you especially if you have a kid who you don't need no he might be eight years old and he might be functioning, he might not be, but you might want to have that testamentary trust. Able to spring open and and have that uh, that ability to manage assets so that their needs are met, and you want to do it in a way that doesn't over that doesn't put assets in the kids' hands and make them unable to qualify for potential benefits that might be available to them.
3: I think that's a decent rule of thumb for most uh, trusts. Most of us don't make our wisest financial decisions at eighteen. I think I can speak for myself. Um, But to have that, and I think that's something that we look at a lot in planning too, is when people want to leave money to their kids, if their kids are 16 or 15 or even younger, um, if we only all knew when we were going to die, it would make planning much easier. (laughs) Um, kind of going more towards the beginning. So as an insurance professional, as an advisor, you're often on the front lines of finding out when people are thinking about divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any preparation or educational tips that you give people, you know, if you're gonna go down this road, this is what you kind of can do to get your ducks in a row?
4: Yeah, so I had a I had a a client uh, come to me early in my career and say, you know, a lot of the things you're saying make a lot of sense, but right now my biggest problem is potentially divorce, right? The thing I urged was Complete transparency, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, uh, as a client for a married couple, I have a fiduciary relationship to both mm-hmm. parties, and I can't favor one over the other. So I recommended 100% transparency, and a few years later, it wound up in divorce, and it was completely uncontested because when he came to me two years ago, there were a lot of questions. Two years later, there was even more money, but it wound up being a very clean, um, you know, they just went to the courthouse themselves and came up with their own agreement. So having uh, somebody who doesn't have a sale at stake, but is just there to be your fiduciary from a financial perspective, I think can can help. And there are a lot of planners who will do that for a fee Mm
2: -hmm. without
4: needing to invest money or sell insurance. There are a lot of good, reputable firms out there that will do that for clients.
1: I got a, another question kind of again for everyone kind of want to bring everyone into the conversation. Now knowing that that that's put into marriage settlement agreements and how important it is, how are the premiums handled? Is it, you know, you're trying to figure out there's a one pot of money and you're trying to figure out what goes to child support, what goes to maintenance. And now this is really important, how do you balance that, right? Because day-to-day cash flow is important. Now they've got two households, they're trying to figure out how to live. And now there's this other consideration of how, how to plan for, for death or disabled, you know, questions like that.
2: Okay, I'll share my personal perspective. And that's why when I, I talked to the front, if you have two people that both want the divorce, the conversation about who's going to pay for it is going to be very easy, because they're going to look and say, well, who can afford to pay for it and who's going to benefit? Okay? Mm-hmm. If neither person wants to coor- cooperate with each other, they're just going to fight about it, because it's another thing to fight about, okay? So then I'll look at the third couple, right? So you have one person who's further along. You have the person who's further behind. My experience is, let's say the person who really wants this divorce wants this insurance, but the person who's behind doesn't really care. Well, that person who wants it is more likely to be, say, okay, I'll pay for it because I want it. Just, so, So this just points out the distinction between couples who are negotiating on their own mm-hmm. versus a judge ordering somebody to pay. So I just want to bring that distinction because really this is a term that they can negotiate. And I would say ownership of the policy is also a term that they can negotiate. And I have had cases where there is a lack of trust and I have simply said she's the beneficiary, make her the owner. And then she said, and I'll pay the premium because I don't trust him to pay the premium.
1: One last question on that though. It, it, there's times when a court You know the 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 MSA says so and so will pay this mortgage. Great example. Then they don't pay the mortgage; it goes into foreclosure, and there's an enforceable mortgage settlement, mortgage or marriage settlement agreement, but the house is still in foreclosure. If they don't pay the premiums, that insurance policy could go away. What then happens? Right? You've got all this planning has been done. You're trying to take care of the beneficiaries, but now there's no policy, and they could have to get reevaluated. Right? And it could be 10 years down the road. And maybe they can't even get insured.
5: Well, there's also the group plans. Right. That you might have to go to like a group plan. Mm-hmm. And that is something that always makes me nervous because you could have a job that could offer that coverage. And then you might have, with benefits changing, I don't really, I would prefer it not ever be a group plan put into the MSA. I'd rather it be a private policy that be kept in there. But that might be a thing where it'd be cross-prohibitive because something would happen that maybe you'd be diagnosed with cancer while you're your life insurance policy would lapse so that you could only be covered by a group premium, you know, a group. You know, under a group plan, and that would be something that you would have to go under that and do that. So there are different options that you could do because it might be where it was $100 a month and maybe the only coverage you could get would be, I, I'm just throwing out a number of like $1,000 a month.
2: And, and I'll say, um, and, and I'm assuming you're also a, 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 financial planner, right? so not only are you looking at insurance, but you're also looking at their retirement, their portfolio. Typically in my MSAs, I would write that if, in, if by some chance the policy were to lapse, then the spouse or the, the person who's supposed to be the beneficiary has a claim against the estate for the deficiency. So if they were supposed to have a $500,000 insurance policy and they let it lapse, then they've got a claim for $500,000 against the assets. Now they may not have that, but it's that's a possible remedy.
4: Yeah, trying to avoid uh, expensive litigation is kind of the goal for having the, done so the like right thing for planning. everybody,
1: except for the people who are litigating.
4: Yeah, one thing I <laughs> wanted to mention to you because uh, you brought it up a couple times now is disability. So one thing that we commonly find in both buy sell agreements or business owners and in divorce settlements, we don't see there's something short of death that could be really bad for both parties and most people don't have enough disability outside of what they get from work and if they're high earners they definitely don't have enough coverage to maintain two lifestyles that they might be used to if they were to become sick and unable to work so that's that should also be accounted for
3: um i know we're going to wrap this up but just i want to end on one note cuz i think that there's some confusion amongst people who are going through divorce on this, if my husband and I were getting divorced and he doesn't want to get life insurance, doesn't believe that he needs it, and I'm worried about my future, am I able to secure and buy a life insurance policy on my husband without his wanting to?
4: So you must have an insurable interest. So if it's not within that year of being incident to a, a, a divorce that probably within that first year, it will be pretty difficult. But you could argue, I think, pretty easily that it's for the kids and have that amount of the premium that you expect being included in alimony. So if you're projecting a $300 a month premium, right, um, you could have him pay for that and then try to set it up on behalf of the kids.
3: So I don't necessarily need him to say, "Oh yeah, sure." No, I'll you will need him. He's got to
4: give his blood and his his exam. Can he be details. compelled to do that, lawyers? So
5: I don't know that either one of us practice litigation, but I'm sure that you could compel anybody to do anything. <laughs> <Of course>. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the or hook is on the paused. back end—the
4: litigation that I'm gonna we're gonna come to you with a claim. Yeah. For this, if not, right? And yeah. and um, I think. Unless I have seen an instance, unfortunately, where the it was too late, and by then the primary breadwinner was no longer in so the yeah. window had closed. Yeah. So it's just a consideration you got to go through while you're while you're going through divorce.
2: And All to right. go back to negotiating, right? It, it, sometimes they say, as long as you don't make me pay for it, fine, I'll give my blood. I'll you know let them take my vitals. Right. Mm-hmm. If that's their thing. They just don't want to pay for it. Right,
1: right, got it. Great segment. I think uh, scary and, and really informative. So, we're going to move on to the next segment of our show. Uh, the next segment of our show is sponsored by See Dick and Jane Get Divorced. The paperwork and stress of a divorce can be overwhelming. Don't let your divorce take over your life. Get organized and take control with See Dick and Jane Get Divorced Organization Kit. Mention or fill in SR 2019 when you order your kit and get 10% off compliments of the Getting Split Ready podcast, <clears throat> pardon me, and you can go to cdickandjanegetdivorced.com for more information about that great kit. Now our next guest is Karen Khalil, a mental health professional and therapist with an expertise in depression. Her, she uses a, thre- a strength-focused approach and her therapy is based in teamwork where the client must collaboratively engage for the best outcome. Her practice focuses on reducing the symptoms of depression and anxiety by adjusting, uh, or adjusting to a changing world and improving communication skills in order to enjoy a more healthy living and fulfilling relationships. She has training in EMDR and she has been a Aikido practitioner for the past 16 years. Uh, and Aikido is a Japanese martial art that has a as a root in conflict resolution, and she brings those principles to her therapy practice. So, thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks,
0: Doug, and Mariah. Uh, I guess I have to update that one because it's been Aikido for 21 years. 21 years, yeah, you do wow! Yes. So oh, I, I guess I have to go back and take a look at that.
1: Now, let's talk a little bit about depression because I think anyone who deals with divorcing clients knows that depression kind of comes with it. Mm -hmm. But what's the difference between being sad and depressed? I know that question goes out a lot.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting and an excellent question. So, you know, sadness is a normal emotion that most people are going to experience and maybe you experience it on kind of a more daily basis, and it's something that kind of comes and goes with time. It's not something that kind of sticks with you. If you're sad because you lost a pet or you got in a fight with a friend, most of the time if it's not... Uh, you know, a, a depressive sort of a state—it's it's something you kind of process through rather quickly, and you kind of move on. Um, so, depression has more to do with—you have a traumatic event, for example, and let's say it's it's the loss of a family member, and you know you're going to go through the normal stages of grief, and you're going to be sad about that. But sometimes, what happens is, if you're not processing through it appropriately, um, you can get stuck in that. And then you start to notice different patterns of behavior that you're experiencing that are out of the ordinary for you. And, you know, if time goes on, I think after two weeks, you know, we can classify that as a major depressive episode.
3: That was my question, actually, was how do I know, right? So if I'm going through a divorce, if I have, you know, the loss of a parent, to go through those emotions, to go through those cycles of sadness and anger is normal. How do I know when I'm not Quote unquote, I know there is no normal, but you know, how do I know when I should worry?
2: Um,
0: I think if you're noticing a prolonged pattern of behavior that's out of the ordinary for you, so you know, for example, some of the classic symptoms that we look at is you know, eating, sleeping, um, you know, are you isolating, are you spending time with friends? Mm-hmm. Um, you know are you able to get out of bed to get to work in the morning or are you noticing now that you're hitting snooze you know 25 times before you can get out of bed are you performing your hygiene appropriately are you engaging in your regular activities are you noticing there's a lack of, of motivation that you're having so you know the way, so if you're noticing a lot of that you know a lot of you know and it's going on for a period of time not like a day or two like i just can't get out of bed today i don't want to face it Um, If you're noticing that it's gone on for a week, maybe two, then I think it's time to maybe I should talk to somebody just to see what's going on. Um, You know, two, sometimes people kind of fall through the cracks and it might not necessarily be a classic symptom that they're having, but they know something doesn't feel right and they know it hasn't felt right for a while. You know, then I would say you might want to just talk with somebody and see what they say about it because, you know, not everybody fits into the the mold of what is depressed, what isn't depressed. So I, I think if you're noticing it's not normal for you, I think that's what the red flag is. Bringing
1: our mediators and attorneys into the conversation, you see those warning signs. So how do you, when you see that, how do you get involved? I know we're involved with the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois, there's mental health professionals, there's mediators, everybody's involved. How do you engage a client with that? Because it's a difficult subject.
5: Well, a lot of times we have a coach that's involved in that who is a mental health professional. So I have turned to them to be involved with that and to look for those signs and have that private conversation. And I would say that most of my clients already have a therapist that are coming into it. And I'm very candid and would have that conversation with them because there is a really high level of trust I think as, you know, their attorney with that to say you really need help. And you know, we really can't move forward with this until you are in a better position. And really to have that conversation that I'm not your therapist Mm -hmm. and that is better addressed with your therapist. And even to sometimes to give those, to say this is what I think you need to speak with your therapist about and have them give some direction there.
2: Yeah. As as she was sharing, frankly, what was going through my mind in my 20s, I actually remember looking in a book and I was like, oh, wow, I am clinically depressed. <laughs> because yeah, I,
1: actually one of the questions that I had is how do you not do the WebMD thing, right? Where you're like, oh, my God, I have Ebola and everything because I'm reading these,
2: <laughs> well, the, <laughs> these, these you know, but, but the symptoms thing, and I'm, you know. But, but, the, joys. but the, the 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 thing I remember distinctly is my own negative self-talk. Mm-hmm. Like I was just constantly, you know, nothing I did was good enough. And, uh, uh, you know, anyway, so I, I use that as the segue because one of the things I do with my clients is I encourage them to shift their language mm-hmm. away from, oh, this will never work out. Oh, you know, I have people, oh, sh- she's going to get everything anyway, so why bother even, like, trying? And it's like, no. So I'm, so personally, you know, yes, I'm going to rely on the mental health people because that's their area of expertise. But in terms of my own demeanor, I'm going to try to help them mm-hmm. speak positively I would say that too like yeah. really
5: just to say you know what we're here together to work I mean that's the whole point of collaborative is to say to get a really a fair and equitable right. you know agreement so that you're both in a better spot and that's why you've come to really be positive
0: right really well, I, I mean I think there's probably some overlap you know because you know yes the negative self-talk we all have that OS that's running us constantly and it's a lot of work to change that So I, you know, I imagine when it's a divorce situation, you know, you've got to be, you know, oh, well, this is never going to happen or I'm never going to be happy again. Well, if you keep telling yourself that, probably that's true. Um, But this is the habit of a lifetime and your thoughts are habits. Mm -hmm. So if you think you're going to fix this overnight or in three weeks, it's not going to happen. I mean, this is something you have to become very consciously aware of and you really have to work for. So, you know, I think while, I think it's great to have the boundaries. I don't think there's anything wrong with maybe, you know, a, you know the attorney saying, you might want to talk to your therapist about this, but I'm just going to kind of encourage you to look at this a little bit more positively and, and you know, because you never know what's going to happen. And that's a big one that I tell my clients all the time. You don't know the future. We don't have that gift.
2: Right, right. Yeah, yeah I'd just like to interject or have you talk about, um, I do think there is a distinction um, when someone ha- has been diagnosed. And if they are taking medication and I think that it would be good for you to kind of share your you know thoughts and about that and in, in what sense? Well, just in terms of, you know, some people think that's a big stigma, like, oh my goodness, they don't want people to know about it and and how you know, I see that as, as a sign of someone who's brave to
0: I agree. But, you know, people have to be ready to talk about these sorts of things. And I I really honor my clients if they don't want to talk to friends and family about what they're going through. If they don't want to say that they're in therapy or if they don't want to tell people they're on meds, I, I honor that, you know. And I know that if they get comfortable enough, they will discuss that. But you know, until people are ready to go there, I, I I don't see the point really in pushing it. You know, but yeah, I mean, there is there's much less stigma than there was, but there's still a fair amount that the we're Sopranos kind of getting get
1: rid of the stigma. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> there's a whole new generation. Yeah, a whole new drug. generation. They're okay with. <laughs> I got a question though, for when when somebody is clinically depressed and then they move into a divorce and the the de- the depression isn't a result of the divorce. Is that privileged information or is that something that that all the parties want to know? during that process to kind of manage that. You know what I'm saying? We've been kind of talking about it being the offshoot of divorce. Well, I'm going through a divorce, now I'm depressed. But if they've been previously diagnosed, or even that's other an important illnesses. thing going in because that could be push them further, I'm guessing, and that could really have an impact.
5: Well, it depends on who, where, 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 in what context we were told that. Was that told in like, in a four way? Was that told in one of our meetings? Was that told? So, but if no one tells you guys,
1: then you don't you don't know about it,
5: right? But to what you
3: said earlier, Trace, about the three categories of people would it, there almost be a fourth category of couples when mental illness is really at play? Because that sort of that's sort of its own situation, right? If there's you know a narcissistic personality or even addictions that can change a lot of those energies, correct?
2: Well, as I as you know, you guys were my processing is. For example, if there is mental illness, it's diagnosed and being treated and they're in litigation and they're all fighting, they're gonna use that's gonna be just another pawn that somebody's gonna use to say, look, she's a bad parent or he's a bad parent. So that's one perspective. And I think Jill was referring to, you know, in a mediation in a collaborative setting, we like to take a therapeutic approach. Like, okay, yes, this person may have an addiction or may be depressed, but how can we put in structures to help them move beyond it? So I do think it's it's somewhat specific. Um, and I, I say it does relate to if, if one person wants out and the other one doesn't, it's going to be a tool versus they both are, yes. I mean, I have had cases where, you know, one person has mental illness and the other person loves them, but it's like, we just don't belong together anymore. And then there's an acceptance of it. And even the person who is being treated, you know, sees it as part of their journey. So
5: I Think it does kind and of And there depend. can be safeguards set up, too, for the mental mm-hmm. illness, set up by the other, you know, party to make sure that the children are safe or there's a safe word or there's addiction to say, you know, the children have the ultimate, say, if they're getting in the car with someone or something like that. That can be addressed in that situation.
1: I want to actually, you said something about the children. If we could shift to that children in depression, what are, you, what are you seeing? Is it is it on the rise? or What are you seeing in your practice? Well,
0: I don't really see kids too much in my practice. I mean, it's, I, I see, you know, people that are pretty much 18 and over. But, um, I mean, with children, it's, you know, it's a little bit trickier um, to diagnose depression because it manifests very differently in children than it does in adults. And it often is mistaken for ADHD. Um, so, you know, in kids, they kind of get, you know, they'll start acting out um, in school, so they might not be able to sit still. They don't want to listen. Um, they're not getting their homework done. Things like that. Whereas adults, they kind of shut down, right? You know, you don't get up out of bed. You don't go to work. You're, you know, you're not as focused as you were before. Um, so with kids, you know, if if there's some suspicion, if you notice, again, if you're noticing an abrupt change in a child's behavior, all of a sudden they're not performing the way they were, I think that's always cause for alarm, and I don't, it really doesn't matter what the diagnosis is at that point. But since we're kind of talking about depression, you know, there is testing that you can do where, you know, you know the, the teachers will kind of note what's happening in school and then have the parents kind of note what's happening at home, and if you see a big discrepancy in the behaviors at home versus at school, that's usually depression. If you're noticing the same behavior, in the you know, at school and at home, it's it, then that's generally ADHD. So, you know, I don't want to say for sure I'm diagnosing anybody on the air, but um, y- you have to kind of look at a bunch of different factors, you know, in, in that regard.
3: I would imagine that's harder, though, when there's almost an innate change in behavior and patterns because of the divorce. There's a change in living. There's a change in routine. There's a change in caregiving. So you're imposing this change and then also looking for change. Is that hard to extricate like what's what and what's causing what?
0: Well, again, I think if you're just noticing abrupt behavior changes in a child, like they're not eating as well, they're not sleeping, maybe they're developing phobias, things like that. These are things that you always want to look at, okay? Uh Those are always cause for alarm to me. If somebody says, my kid all of a sudden doesn't want to do this thing, they always used to really enjoy it. You know if it's coupled with something else you know then i'd say you might want to have them see somebody okay. and, and just get checked out and make sure everything's okay because there's a lot of different things it could be
1: and when when it's somebody themselves when they're starting to feel that way what's what's the recommendation you give in engaging with a? with a therapist, with a mental health professional, how do they find the right one and, and come to terms with that?
0: Well, Doug, uh, we're <laughs> going to have our own, uh, our, our own podcast about that. Right. So, um, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough one to find. I, I think you, know, you really do have to build a rapport with your therapist. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to say you're just looking at somebody's bio and, and does it sound like it resonates with you. Um, but what I would say is if you're seeking therapy, you know, feel free to say no if you're not jiving with that person because we're professionals. We understand that not every client is you've got to find somebody who's making you comfortable. And I really think it's important that we start where the client is, that we respect their self-determination, and we're not pushing them too hard, too fast to do something they're not ready to do.
1: And you did mention your podcast. I know you're working on that with our great producer, yes, I am. EAS Productions, <laughs> Ernie Scatton. Uh Any idea when that's going to be coming out? We'd love to promote it.
0: Well, we're going to be talking about it soon.
1: Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Excellent.
2: Okay. I just would like to share and something that kind of transitions like that with the divorce process. In that I have had cases where parents are off, right? They're not getting along. And then the children are kind of caught in the middle. Because again, they don't—they—they they're, typically have a stronger relationship with one parent or the other. You know, there's a whole thing now called parental alienation, where one parent is claiming that the other is trying to separate them from the child. And I just want to point out that some courts will order, like, in—I had a case where father and you know tween daughter would go to therapy together, like, and and then it came became a question of well, who is the therapist? Well, mom wanted to choose the therapist that dad and the daughter would go to. So I'm just (laughs) pointing out that it can turn into a lot of activity and rigmarole. And then it was like, well, it should be a man. No, it should be a woman. It should be, you know, a Christian. It should be a a Muslim, whatever. I'm just letting you know that there is an interface between the mental health world and the legal world. And it, it, it will be a function of the people's personalities. But I agree with you, like... They, you need to resonate with whoever your therapist is, because if you're going to open up, if anything is going to happen, you have to trust that person.
0: Definitely.
1: And we're going to wrap up that segment. If they want to get hold of you, what's the best way to get hold of you?
0: Um, uh, probably uh, my email address. Okay.
1: You want to give it on the air real quick. Uh,
0: it's kjkalliel at gmail dot
1: Fantastic. And we'll have all of the contact information for our guests. Uh. On uh, the website, as well as all the places we put the podcast.
3: Our next segment is brought to you by One Cut Organizing Inc. Decluttering and organizing your home can lead to true transformation and bring about never before experienced clarity in life goals, passion, and purpose. And One Cut Organizing can help you. OneCutOrg at gmail.com, also on Facebook, or 734 358 9985 we're gonna jump into the
1: next segment and this is where divorce meets real estate Uh, our next subject matter expert Jill Daniels uh, an experienced attorney mediator and advocate and really interesting practice Uh, and we've done some stuff together where you do a lot of real estate transactions as well as collaborative divorce and mediation Uh, you earned your law law degree from Loyola University Chicago and undergraduate from Illinois Benedictine a frequent speaker and regularly present to realtors, prospective home buyers, and financial planners. And want to again just jump right in. What are the big mistakes people make with divorce and real estate? I know I'm on the lending side, but there's times when I go talk to a lawyer because if you screw it
3: up, it's going to be bad.
5: <laughs> so I think there that could should be-, be on
3: your business card if you screw it if up, it's going to be it's- bad. It's- <laughs> well, I mean, I
5: don't even know if bad's so the work. So, um, I think that there's a lot of planning that needs to go into it. So if we like, I know Doug, we've worked a lot on them and like talked a lot about the pre-divorce lending, yep. which I think is so, so, so key to be before you are divorced, before you even file to have that conversation about what are you going to do with your house? And so I think that, I don't know. I find from where I am that that's really typically people's biggest asset is their home and it's also their biggest worry. So like if you can see where are you going to live and if we can each figure out you know if each party can figure out their home situation sometimes all the other pieces maybe fall into place. You know if you each have a place to live and you can see where you're going to go maybe you know the, where the how the the children's schedules work and everything else kind of falls into place because the statute takes care of a lot of the other things and that just falls into place. So if you can plan that out And when you come into the financing aspect of it, that's where you can, like somebody like you can be really helpful Doug, to plan that out and say, okay, we're going to refinance this house so that you can purchase this house. And especially if both spouses are working, it can really, you know, you can purchase a house and say, you know what, you're going to waive your homestead rights. And a lot of times people don't realize you can purchase a house married and not even have your other spouse sign off on that mortgage because you're purchasing it as a married person, but not having that spouse live in the house. And then, you know, so you can plan that out. So there's also I'm kind of like rambling, but I know there's so many places you can go with this. So I don't even know where to go. But um, in doing that, you can clean things up ahead of time. So you can have, you know, you can do a cash out refi when you refinance that house to, you know, let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars in equity. So you could take $50,000 out of your marital home. So that's been divided. Put that 50000 into purchasing a home. So you've already cleaned that up. So by the time you go to go get your divorce done, you've already had your house cleaned up. And so there's maybe less to go into dividing up. I would rather always see from the, have the house done prior to having them sell a house after the divorce. Because I, th- from, and then from the real estate standpoint, if I'm doing the real estate and representing the couple when they're divorced, I would rather have title. When I get a marital settlement agreement and I see that they're divorced and I'm looking at to clear a title and it just says they'll agree on how the proceeds are going to be split. If we don't have an agreement, let's say they've been divorced five years, I mean, maybe they're not in a good relationship maybe there's a power play that attorney hasn't done a really good job they both have to sign off on the deed um there's a lot of things that go into play so i as the real estate attorney have to be i'm put in a really prickly situation because if they don't have an agreement especially if that um you know one of the people has to go purchase and needs the proceeds from the house and they i mean they're just going to agree on how they're going to be split well they might not agree I mean, let's not even go might. They're probably not going to agree. You know, the title company's got to hold the money. or they And I have to have them both sign the deed. So let's just start with that. Okay, so both husband and wife, let's say, need to sign the deed. Well, what if I can't get one of them to sign off on the deed? We can't sell the house. And we're going to go back to the realtor, which they think only maybe one of them owns the house, and they don't both sign the listing agreement. Right or then we have to negotiate credits through this. And I have two parties I'm negotiating with that are very, you know, not getting along and maybe agreeing that they have a on that they have to mitigate. So it's much better to have a really clean agreement. And if you don't can't sell the house prior to the divorce being finalized, it's much better than to have it very clear cut and then have that done as an exhibit and not filed with the court. So if you have it very clear as an exhibit, you know, I am always happy to provide you know, like what are all of these things? Because I think a lot of times if you don't do real estate, you might not even really realize what maybe all those costs are, even how to calculate like a net sheet and what all of that might be. Or even, for example, how to prorate taxes or even if your escrow is going to come back, who does that check come back to from the mortgage company? Because you're having it, it might be, it could be $10,000 that's coming back. And who is it going to come to? How is that check going to be divided? Let's say one of the spouse Somebody didn't live in the house for 18 months. They were paying the mortgage. There's so much to break down. And it oftentimes I see it's not done very thorough. It's glossed over.
3: One of the most common questions that we get um, is in the marital settlement agreement, it's that one person's going to refinance the house within X, Y, Z amount of time. And even if there's a lot of thought given to that X, Y, Z amount of time, sometimes the spouse that's supposed to refinance doesn't do it. Is there a way to make that more enforceable, other than going back to court, in their planning and in their you know talks with their lawyers? Because that's one of the most common questions that we get is my husband said he was gonna refinance, or my wife said she was refinance within six months. And then they either can't, which is when they need to talk to Doug in the first place, or they won't. How does that get done better, I guess, would be the question that people are asking.
5: Well, I'm gonna say that's not really a durable agreement. And that, to me, why, is well, you don't know rates, you could lose your job. I mean, it's you know, there you refuse to do it. I mean, there could be so a multitude of reasons why you're not refinancing in that six months. Um, and to me, that is not something I would say we're not going to finalize the divorce until that's done. So why would you put your client at risk to do that? Is where I my position I would take is when the house is refinanced, then you finalize your divorce.
1: Question I get a lot, obviously I'm on the real estate side too, is ownership. People just don't really understand ownership, quick claims and things like that, and their claim to the home. Any advice you can give the listeners and people listening to the replay about what to do about ownership, when they should feel comfortable giving it up? Because that's the big question I get is, when should I be okay signing the quick claim and still know that I've claimed to the equity but not necessarily be on the whatever future mortgage there is?
5: So... I mean, so like we'll kind of back it up to show ownership so if you have somebody like i bought a house or let's say i bought a house prior to being married while i was married my husband moved into the house we got divorced and then i went to go sell the house after he was divorced so my marital status always goes on the deed at transfer so i bought it single sold it single but i owned it while i was married and then divorced so my marital status would be the same but During that time, I was divorced. So I would need a quitclaim deed or my ex-husband would need to sign away his homestead rights on there. So I would need to have the quitclaim deed would be both me and my husband or my ex-husband needing to say, you know, Jill and Peter Daniels you know, we're not getting divorced, Peter, so don't worry if you're listening. But um, <laughs> just throwing it out there. So be Jill a great and- show, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could spice it up a little. By I mean, the way, I get a lot of viewership <laughs> if I announced it here, right? Um, so Jill and Peter Daniels, you know, um, you know, quit claim it over to Jill Daniels. Okay, so that would be him. Both of us agreeing that he's giving his rights to me. Okay, that would be after he moved out of the home. Okay, so that would be, we clear up title, so there would be no issues coming forward. If we didn't put marital status as, you know, Jill Daniels, divorce from Peter Daniels, Peter Daniels, not since remarried, and the same for Peter, on there, then that would clear up title so that we would have no issues when I went to go sell. So title was then vested back to my name. Okay, so then we would be clear. So let's say that, you know, we were married but separated. Okay, you have an issue of ownership that's different than equity issue because the equity is decided in the marital settlement agreement. The same thing would apply because you would be waiving Homestead if he wasn't living in the home. So we would still say Jill Daniels married to Peter Daniels and Peter Daniels married to Jill Daniels or married to each other, however you would want to describe that. Um, You know, you know, quick claims it over to Jill Daniels, a married woman, but that but if he's living in the home still, we, would need to, we couldn't do that quick claim deed because you have homestead rights. Because in Illinois, if it's a marital home and you're living in the home, the spouse has homestead rights. So I think those are two different questions. One thing I'm
1: hearing is don't try and do it yourself. And I mean, with all of this stuff, I think people think, and we actually, when the Q&A part, we'll talk a little bit about this. But people think, hey, I can just do a ton of research online and figure this out. And... No. you can well, do a I ton even, of research online
5: and
3: you probably still won't figure it out right, yeah, well sure. here's what
5: I gonna tell you I have, a, I have a deed now and we're closing like in three weeks and he did the deed himself to save some money and he didn't put marital status down they were both single at the time but I'm like she needs to sign the deed he goes well it's been 10 years and I'm like well you didn't have mar-. he was like I don't understand I'm like well you didn't have marital status down and we need to know this, or we've got to do like an affidavit to show everything from both of you. So if you're both doing affidavits, why don't we just have a new quitclaim deed done and move on? Like that would be much e- easier than a whole affidavit sure. going on. So
1: when well, I know even ownership can, it can impact uh, things like the, the capital gains and, and stuff like that. If you give up ownership, it can impact that. So correct.
3: So I know that for a lot of people, going through this cost is a big consideration. Is this something that they can consult with you for like a flat fee or is it like a um, more of a known cost? Are they engaging and get a third attorney if they're using you as the real estate attorney versus having two divorce attorneys? How does that usually so like, work?
5: A real estate attorney is a flat fee. Mm-hmm. So I'm a flat fee for the real estate attorney. So it really is, most people have their divorce attorneys and then they have a separate real estate attorney. So it's a flat fee for the whole transaction. Okay. And so... It really just is, you know, they call me all the time that they, you know, it's just, it's like a high volume type of practice to do that. And it's really, I'm very clear with setting the rules and it's not really a negotiation type of situation. And I really, this is how it goes. And I really don't want to banter individually with people. It's like, we're making a joint decision. Like, you know, this is how it's going forward. And, um, you know, you have to really, if you have radon and your home tests high for radon, this is pretty much, you have you're to. big on radon.
1: It. I've heard radon three times,
5: radon. It's, it's a big deal. It's a big, it's a big deal, deal right, right now. If you're I'm hearing about home. it all the time. Or if you have like, you know, an issue and you've got some electrical issues, like we're not, like because the, the issue is the closing cost credits and like you have big home inspection issues. You know, somebody doesn't want to give here. Someone doesn't want to give here. And, you know, I've been at closings where like, you know, they're like at the last minute, somebody's like, I, there's walkthrough issues. Well then, you know what? Okay, then you're not getting the money because if there's not an agreement, then the, I really don't care. We have to close because you're in breach of contract, and it's just going to sit at the title company. Right? You know, I mean, it's kind of like we're not we're not screwing around. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great information again, near and dear to my heart on the real estate side. So we're moving to the final segment of the show. The final segment of the show, we field questions from the people who write us because we get a lot of questions in through Split Ready. This segment of the show, as I said, is brought to you by EAS Productions, Ernie Skatton Productions, the producer of our show. If you're looking to do a podcast, great producer, does a fantastic job for us. Set if you like our people. show,
3: it's mostly because of him. Yes, <laughs> that's why we sound good.
1: So, leading off on a question, and we actually are posting an answer that we found uh, yesterday. We do, we do these split-ready answers every week. But we had a question about nesting. So would love to hear what what our professionals know about nesting and what you
3: guys think of it. I'm certain you guys have opinions on nesting. We can (laughs) define nesting. So nesting is um, when the kids stay in the home and the parents rotate in and out versus the parents going from mom's house to dad's house. So usually there's three residences, sometimes two, but usually it's the kid's house and then mom and dad leave and come.
2: Okay. Um, I got voted on going first, and I'm sure <laughs> I that... I just spoke, so, so I yeah. thought it was Teresa's turn. This is Teresa cool. <laughs> Um So my experience with it comes in different flavors, right? If there's a whole lot of money, it possibly works, uh, and generally for a short period of time. In other words, um, I've had couples where they're in that early stage of trying to work out, you know, what are the terms of the divorce going to be, and so they have, they have the children in the home. And then sometimes it's one residence that's outside mm-hmm. of the home. So they get an apartment. And so if it's dad's week, then mom's in there. And if it's mom's week, then dad's in there. You know, there's it, it makes it easier. So the
1: second residence they
2: rotate through as well. That's one situation I've had. Um, another situation of nesting, you know, on when it was dad's. Time. Then mom went and stayed with her family. Mm-hmm. So now the idea that people are going to have one home for the children and then they're each going to have their own homes forever. Again, you would have to have a lot of money to do H- that. Have you seen it? I've never personally seen either. it. Um, when I talk to mental health professionals, Ernie Scatton er- has Ernie seen Singe
3: it. Has.
1: Okay. <laughs> what yeah,
2: <laughs> <and show> <laughs> so some of the some of the statement.
1: I don't mean to interrupt, but I actually we have friends who are doing this right now in Oak Park, and they're they are very wealthy, um, but they and, and <laughs> yeah. it's working out wonderful. Like how I long have the they kids, been doing it? Uh, over a year now, about, okay. almost two years, about two years, and they each have their own apartment. He lives in Chinatown, um, and she lives I want to say Berwyn-ish, and
3: okay. they have
1: a nice house in Oak Park. And the kids live in the house, and the kids are completely adjusted. It's it's awesome. The kids it's like nothing ever happened. Mom comes one week, and may stay extra. Dad comes the next week, and it works out absolutely wonderful. See, that's where two flats could work really well, right? You have the upstairs, which would be the rotation. No, nah, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they,
2: that's they when you they need the, the, hold the hold depression specialist need, when yeah. you're
1: living that close to your ex.
2: <laughs> so, so thank you, Ernie. I appreciate that. I will say I haven't heard of that working for a long-term solution. And part of the mental health people who I've heard, their concern is that the kids actually don't ever go to mom's house or dad's house, so they don't get a sense of mom and dad having like lives beyond what um, the house is. So I'm not again. I I'm have not- read
1: some about the temporary versus permanent nature of it, where sometimes you just set an amount of time so that they can acclimate to mom and dad not being together, and then you slowly move toward.
5: Yeah. It. So that's just my experience. I don't know. Jill might have some. More. I have a couple that's been doing it that I did a mediation for that's been doing it for five years. Wow. And their need to do it was that they have a child with special needs and the house was handicap accessible. And so um, they cycle in and out. And so they have different spaces in the house. And our job was to set boundaries. And it's been working out really well. And I think
3: as a mediator, one of our jobs is to reality test people when they are doing things. And I think that's something that people don't necessarily think of when they think of nesting. But there are definitely some intimacies that are still shared, potentially. Um, if there's still a bedroom that's being shared at either or both residences, you know, if you keep clothing or belongings there and you're not in the house for a week and your ex spouse has access to your stuff, there's a certain level of trust and not as much separation maybe as some people are looking for in a divorce when you're nesting. Yeah, sure. And there
5: might be re- I mean, there's and for this one, there was a specific reason. And that's a, and r- a need. really good reason. And it was, you know, and if you put, I think, especially when we talk about collaborative divorce and really it being children first. And I think that that is, if that's your focus, that can be really a strong pull.
3: I'm yeah. um, going back to a real estate question because there were a couple that came in um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing them, but in terms of refinancing the house, I think a lot of times that people believe, and Doug, you might have some insight on this as well, that they can't refinance till the divorce is done, either because of child support and maintenance needing to be shown in order to refinance or cases where they're using assets received from a quadro In order to do the refinance. So, if those two things are in play, how does that change? For the the listeners, Quadra. Qualified domestic relations order, which is how you get a portion of a retirement account that doesn't belong to you in a divorce.
5: So, the first question was they are having to pay out? Or they need to
3: show uh, spousal support or child support in order to qualify to refinance the house.
5: Well, I mean, that might be more for you. Yeah, no, I mean,
3: typically, it depends on the program. Most programs require six months, but not
1: the final six months. So, if you've got a temporary agreement and that shows six months of payments of a certain amount on time, it shows the willingness and the ability to pay of the paying spouse. And as a result, they have the ability to use that to establish that six months and they can refinance right out of it. There are other um, institutions that have portfolio programs where they can just make a decision and look and say, we like this deal, we like this situation, the paying spouse is going to pay and we'll do that deal. Um, so it, it really, you know, it's that, it's that collaborative effort, right? It's the attorneys knowing who to talk to, to have that broken down from the mental health professionals to the insurance, to everybody involved.
2: And I'd know. just like to point out, you, you made the statement, they're waiting for money from a quadro. Mm-hmm. You can actually prepare and enter a quadro prior to judgment. So if they need money for a down payment, they can still get that money prior to finalizing the divorce. Just letting, I, letting people know that.
1: Well, and this actually, there's a, I think we get the question every week about prose and do-it-yourself. And I think this is a great way, because I'm sure we'll be talking a while on it. Um, what, everybody, what are your opinions on this? You know, I think we see, and I always get in trouble because my questions are long, but <laughs> to preface it, Generation Y millennials, they're used to going on YouTube to figure out, like I just replaced the bumper on my truck and went on YouTube five years ago. I couldn't have done that.
3: But you're not a millennial, Doug.
1: I understand, and that's why because but millennials are even more so. They they go online, and they figure stuff out, and as a result, this do-it-yourself wave has really hit divorce. And you know, we've got really financial, we've got legal, we've got everybody here. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I you know I think you you spoke aptly about going on WebMD and you know being convinced you got Ebola. So, you know, I, I mean, the internet is, is a double-edged sword just like anything else, right? You know, so if people are like, well, I'm gonna go online and see what I might have, I, you know, I, I have no idea how many calls I get of people thinking that they've got borderline personality disorder. And they're convinced that they have borderline personality disorder and they have to come in and they need all these medications and whatever. And, you know, most of the time, it's not what's going on.
3: Well, and currently, what, everyone's divorcing a narcissist? That's the trend right, right. now, is yes. every, well, which statistically is probably not yeah. true. Or your sociopath yeah. or
0: something else. So there are a lot of symptoms that may kind of overlap. Um, but what you've got to look at are patterns. And there's a lot, I mean, it's way too much beyond the scope of this podcast. But, I mean, there are so many other factors that go into making a diagnosis that to think that you're gonna do that online, like you're gonna learn how to change your bumper, it's, and people, it's just
3: unrealistic. And people aren't usually their best version of themselves when they're going through a divorce either, so right, right
1: they're right. not showing their because best I thing. could tell you've got something to say on well, that
2: one. I'm just gonna go back to my first, you know, three categories of people, right? If both people are ready to get divorced and they don't have children, they don't have a lot of stuff, maybe they could go pull up the papers and fill stuff out but if they have been married a long time and they've got entrenched personalities and their children, they're not gonna be able to do it successfully. Also,
5: or they could do it, but it's gonna be wrong and they might make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah. And our production assistant would like to point out the millennials don't have money or assets, which is not always <laughs> true, but sometimes true. Right. If you have no getting them. Counsel, <laughs>
1: Well, no, what's interesting <laughs> is, is I work, you know, I, outside of the divorce space, I work with a lot of young, uh, you know, millennials, guys coming out of the military, I work with those folks, and they're building large real estate portfolios. Mm-hmm. So divorce in your world is going to get interesting. Yeah. Some of these 28-, 30-year-olds have six, seven, eight investment properties. So it's not just the marital home. Now you've got an entire portfolio of investment properties. It's going to get really interesting when people try and do it yourself.
3: I also want to say that whether or not you can do it yourself, I mean depending on assets and life circumstances too, also really depends on your state because some states are far easier and make their paperwork far more accessible because there is a percentage of the population that's going to go pro se. Some states make it easy, some states make it Worse than having Ebola from WebMD.
2: <laughs> well, and I can say that Terminal sometimes cancer. Yeah. people show up at my door with, oh, we went online and we did all this. And it's, it's worse than if they would have just come in with nothing. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, What do you think about seminars and things people can go to? There's a lot of those available. Do, do any of you run seminars or group, group sessions where people can kind of get a taste and figure out that they need maybe some more help?
2: I do not. I have, Um, but let me distinguish, because I think this is really important. You can go to a seminar for three potential topics, okay? You could go just to learn the paperwork, right? I mean, that's a pain in the butt. It's an
3: all-day seminar.
2: Right. (laughs) Then you could learn the rules of the law that would determine what goes into the paperwork, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so what is child support guidelines, or how does your state divide property, Okay, and then the third thing is how to negotiate because I have people come into my office and they're like, okay, and this is how it's going to be. I'm like, did you tell your husband? Oh, no. Like, they think that just because they want it, that's how it's going to be. So there's a learning in terms of how do you communicate with someone. So do you think
1: those are good resources or is it?
2: Well, I'm
5: saying that there's three different learnings that one could could learn about. Okay. Okay. And that doesn't mean you're learning how to get divorced, right? It's a right. Skill sets for right. a divorce, yeah.
1: So it's a lot. Leave it to the pros.
5: I, the paperwork especially.
4: <laughs> yeah, and to Mariah's point, some states have it so that the beneficiary automatically changes mm-hmm. on the filing date of a divorce, even if the the original spouse wanted, uh, you know, the 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 future. Ex-wife and kids to have it—it's—it's it's automatically severed uh, to prevent, you know, a, a benefit for some unruly behavior. So and it th-
1: sounds like people should be their general, their own general contractor, and get all the subcontractors they need to, get to help expert, them figure out and a stay out of expert. trouble and keep yeah. their keep
4: their mental health. And in order. also, with the federal, any federal plan, any ERISA back plan, whatever you did is not going to qualify with. It's just a marital, you know, separation agreement. You need to get a quadro and you need to change all of those documents. If you have a life insurance policy through your group plan, that's not going to follow. Even if you forgot and you did it with all your other documents, you didn't change beneficiaries, your ex is still going to get it.
3: And it happens.
4: And it happens a lot because people get busy, they think. Mm -hmm. They're on to the next.
3: Well, and we're not in a day and age of people having one or two jobs and staying with the same company for 40 or 50 years like we used to be. People have five, six, seven different employers. Sometimes they leave their plans with their previous employers and that's a lot of beneficiaries to change. So yeah, stuff Absolutely. gets forgotten. Um, on the financial side, um, I know a lot of times the financial advisor is the advisor to the married couple. Do you have thoughts or experiences with when the divorce occurs, does one person have to break up with the advisor as well? Can that relationship still be a valuable relationship? Cause you have history. How does that often work?
4: Um, generally it is, I think prudent for most folks to seek their own, uh, advisor on their behalf. I mean, I think if, uh, just statistically, um, most widows, Seventy percent mm-hmm. of them go and find their own advisor, even though the couple had one for decades, mm-hmm. because there's no there's no connection, and maybe you know one spouse made all the just financial decisions, and so you know, unless there's in a circumstance where they both feel comfortable and they both are maybe in this you know they're in scenario where they're both ready to get divorced and they're both feel good about how it happened. I don't find that to be the norm. I usually find one jilted and one not as jilted. It it's some it it makes sense I think to have somebody look at uh things di- differently from a with a new f- set of eyes because you and I could look at two different portfolios and have very different views about the trajectory Correct. and inherent risks in a portfolio and I, I think you need to have that perspective at times.
3: I wonder if anyone's ever fought over their financial advisor during a divorce uh, <laughs> negotiations on who gets to keep the advisor or who gets to yeah. keep the accountant. I so bet you it's come up.
4: Our firm does not have a strict policy, but they do ask if both want the same advisor for a special form be f- to be filled yeah, out. Yeah,
3: that makes sense.
4: Because you don't want to accidentally disclose something to, to one or the other. Like, hey, that insurance policy is still in place,
3: right? You can't answer that question. Um, so, yeah. Uh, another question that came in, uh, it's that time of year. Does child support cover back to school expenses? In about six different forms, that question is asked. <laughs> I'll leave that to the attorneys to start with.
5: Well, it depends on what back to school expenses that you're talking about. Is it tuition? Is it how is it outlined in the agreement? So that's if, if it's in the
3: agreement, then hopefully it's outlined and it's specific. But I think I mean, is that it in like a lot of a backpack
5: or trapper is it like... right?
3: exactly? A trapper keeper. Back to nineteen eighty
5: one.
1: my, my daughter. It? She, she, went, she went. She or went. school it? shopping, and I said, Did "You get a trapper keeper."
3: Did you know she only, what you were talking about? They don't
1: have it. Well, I showed her one, <laughs> and she thought it was the dumbest thing ever.
3: it within like Yeah, but you know, you had like the cool, the cool, whatever was on there. I think as. It's I mean, getting it more expensive fees? to send kids back to school. So I know when I was in high school, which wasn't that long ago, um, our back-to-school expenses, like books fees, they weren't a lot. I know that in our school district, uh, we're tipping six, seven, eight hundred for book fees and rental fees to go back to school. So then it becomes a bigger expense. Um, so would that be considered child support? Does it depends it depend? on how it's outlined. That's the best question. Is it depends, or the best answer is it depends?
2: Yeah, I will say that um, in my. Practice when we negotiate who pays for what. I put in there specifically, um, especially like computers and calculators. My kid had, you I, know, a hundred-dollar calculator mm-hmm. for high school calculus. So, you know,
3: just one. No, I get went get through computers. three. They well, get, get right. get books now, right? for each one. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think we ended our last session on the question being "it depends," or the answer being "it, it depends." It depends. Yep. Mm-hmm. So find
1: find a find, a, uh, find an expert. So I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you to our guests. We're going to have information on all of them. And just a recap of our guests: we have Teresa Coulot from Trinity Family Services. Trinity, Trinity Family, Family Law. Law. How do I get it wrong every time? Trinity Family Law. Information will be on the podcast, on the websites, everywhere. We've got Steve Coe from Lennox Advisors. Is that right? I got that one right. Right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. There you go. Great. We'll have his information. Karen Khalil. Expert in depression.
4: <laughs>
1: That's such a weird thing to yeah, expert you you in mental me health. An,
0: LCSW, I mean. an expert
1: there in mental go. health. <laughs> there you go. Um, and then Jill Daniels from Jill, Jill Daniels Law. All of their information will be on our site so you can get hold of them. Ask them further questions if you have any.
3: And we want to thank everyone for joining us and listening to the Getting Split Ready podcast. If you or someone that you know is considering or going through a divorce, please go to splitready.com. Take our assessment and find out if you are indeed split ready. And remember that you can get through your divorce with your finances, your integrity, and hopefully some sanity intact. Thank you.